summoned the Scream Writers Podcast, the premier podcast welcoming both veteran and up-and-coming horror screenwriters slay their craft. <laughs> and now your hosts, Ariel Relaford and Patrick Mediate. Welcome to the Screamwriters Podcast. I am Patrick Mediate, joined by your co-host, Ariel Relaford, the otherworldly Ariel Relaford. I can't miss the term of endearment. That wouldn't be cool. <laughs> otherworldly. You know I'd get it in there. I was getting nervous there for a second. Though. I'm like, oh, he forgot. <laughs> I would never forget. <laughs> I think it's just the holidays and this time of year. It's just, just so much going on. Your mind just drifts. Even doing this podcast, oh, your your mind kind of goes to other places and you're trying to like stay centered and de-stress and you've got the holiday to contend with. You've got your job to contend with. You've got writing to contend with. How do you like come to grips with everything and, and de-stress and get yourself in the zone to be productive? Is drinking an answer? Drinking is is like an addition to an answer it's like the appetizer it's like the companion to the to the oh real God. answer there is a like bourbon or whiskey that's called writer's tears so <laughs> santa <laughs> aptly named writer's <laughs> tears i love the line there was a um what was it? it's from this really cheesy movie and the girl goes don't drink to feel better drink to feel even better it was it was from a movie called what? Yeah, it was Reese Witherspoon in How Do You Know? Oh, yeah, and I've never she, seen that. And she's like out at the bar with Paul Rudd and uh, Paul Rudd just keeps drinking. And she's like, my father once told me, don't drink to feel better. Drink to feel even better. That's screenwriting for you at its yeah, best. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I like the line. Besides drinking, mm -hmm. what do you do to keep your eye on the prize this time of year and maybe get some pages done and get things accomplished? I try to make sure I write a little bit every day, even if it's a sentence at this point, because there's just so much going on. But mm. if it's a really crazy day and I just don't have the mental capacity to do it, I take a break. It's fine. It's like, okay to it, take a break. The notion that people can't ever take a break, especially when they're overwhelmed or there's 8 million things going on, is kind of ridiculous. I, I agree. I mean, I think it's important to take breaks. And I don't know if my co-writer listens to the show, but recently we got into a new screenplay. You know, it's tough. She is dealing with some things with work and a lot of busyness and a lot of things with family and so on and so forth. And she basically came to me and said, look, I, I need to, to just take a break from this. It, it feels too much right now. I've got so much going on and, and things do pile on. And it, and it is tough when you're co-writing with someone and have a writing partner and one party is in another headspace especially over this time and the other party's like oh you know because it stunts that growth of the the screenplay you can't move forward you can't do it in good faith move forward without the other person collaborating so that was a little tough for me and something I'm dealing with but in general I've heard from a lot of people this year and again it's the pandemic and all sorts of things are going on that it's okay to like do that and I totally understood when she told me that I said look okay if this is what you need to do. This is what you need. And, and we're, we're going to come out of this in the future and we're going to start again uh, fresh and you, everybody's going to overcome these obstacles. But it's OK to take that break, even if it's a few weeks, even if it's like I need to spend time with my family for this time and, and read because mm -hmm. you're not going to be productive writing if you have all this other stuff on your mind. Yeah, exactly. And on Twitter, especially, there's a lot of writers who are always like, oh, right. If you're not writing right now, right. And people 
people do need to take a break just because someone can crank out 10 pilots and five features in a year. Don't compare yourself to that. If you can't handle it, it's okay. Everyone's on their own journey. It's, a, it's different for everyone and not everyone has to meet these crazy standards or level of levels of production that some people advertise on social. It's just not realistic. Yeah, I feel like we needed to have a little bit of holiday intervention with our listeners because I've been here just getting it a lot lately. I've been seeing it on Twitter, hearing it from from personal uh, fellow writers that things are tough. And, and we're just I want to be here with you, Ariel, to tell people that it's OK. That's all. Are you making headway on this screenplay that you're working on, Ariel? I, I've read it. it it's terrific. And, and you're working really hard at it. Has it been tough for you during this time? Are you taking some time off or are you just kind of plugging through? On and off. When I can write and I'm in the right headspace because it's so dark and just mm. sort of painful to write because it sort of reflects everything that's going on in real life right now here in the U.S. I sometimes can't write it and need to take a break and just to forget about it for a little bit. So it's coming along, but it comes along when... I feel well enough to write it. For sure. I had to stop uh, another screenplay with, uh, again, that was was co-writing. Um, and we were getting in fights, li- really just truly getting in fights over the screen. And we're like, what is going on? And the reason why was because the pandemic had just hit. It was really in full swing of the pandemic. And we were dealing with really heavy material, re- just a really heavy, not fun screenplay and we literally had to drop it and say look we're going to come back to this one we're going to start another one that's a little more it's still horror and and it's still but it's true horror but it's got some comedy elements and it's, it's more fun to write mm-hmm. um there's the fun screenplays and then there's the, the heavier ones you know sometimes you may have to leave something that's a little darker in subject matter for something lighter or just at least more fun to write oh absolutely And that being said, if your writing is negatively impacting your mental health, take a break. It won't make you less of a writer. No one's going to judge you for taking care of yourself. I feel like we need... An email. <laughs> That's a, the way you were going with that. I, I feel I feel like you were gonna give like the number to call if you or yeah. someone you know has an addiction and needs support. Call five 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 seven seven screenwriter. Ooh, screen, Ooh. screen That's not a real thing. Don't call that number. Screenwriter therapy hotline. <laughs> I love it. On a lighter note, we have something really exciting today for the holiday season for Christmas time and holiday time and gift giving time. You know, I don't know if it would go out in time for Christmas because the mail is all messed up right now, but it could be a nice like I forgot your Christmas gift and you can give it to them afterwards. But our friends over at 1428 Street and our sponsor and our makers of our glorious art have said they want to provide and give one of our lucky listeners the gift of a horror knife of their choosing. They can decide Mm -hmm. any horror movie they want and they will make a horror knife for them. And if you have not seen what these 1428 Street horror knives look like, go over to 1428ST on Facebook and they're on full display and they are so awesome. Yeah. So awesome. They're amazing. Yeah. And uh, they did one, which we'll post photos, that they did a um, Scream Writer's uh, knife for Ariel and myself and we'll post these uh, images of this knife on social. You can check it out. Um, they're su- they came out super, super cool. But you have to listen until the end of the episode. We'll give out how you can actually win one of these knives yep basically we're gonna hold you hostage for this episode we're holding 
holding you hostage. You have to stay. We're going to tie you to the radiator. <laughs> you have to stay and listen to the end. And no scrubbing until the end, just skipping over all the fun stuff because we have an awesome, awesome guest today. None of that. We don't have to hold you hostage. You're going to you're gonna listen to the end of this episode. If you started it, you're going to finish it. Get start something and not finish it. Right, Ariel? That's true. That's true. What's that thing called when you're like held hostage and then you like start to <laughs> fall in love with your captors? <laughs> then you stay. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I don't know if there's a word for it. There I was going to say it's definitely it. called a kidnapping or an abduction. Uh, <laughs> Stockholm syndrome. Yes, Stockholm syndrome. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny. Um, we've got a great guest today. His name is uh, Vincenzo Natale. His sci-fi and horror writing credits are absolutely insane and include the 1997 hit film Cube, awesome movie, which he also directed, 2019's Splice, which is one of my favorite recent um, sci-fi films, uh, which he also directed, and 2019's In the Tall Grass, among many others. He has also dabbled in television uh, with the Darknet TV series, of which he wrote and directed an episode of. In addition to his writing and directorial efforts, he's also an accomplished storyboard artist, producer, and even actor. We are tickled to have Vincenzo on the show, and I, for one, am a huge fan. So I'm going to geek out a little bit. Welcome to the show, Vincenzo. Welcome, Vincenzo. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. Your screenplay credits are absolutely incredible. But I first want to talk about your storyboarding credits. Since I I recently discovered this out about you, do you feel that your storyboarding experience has contributed to your storytelling abilities? Tell us what made you first want to be a storyteller, specifically for sci-fi and horror. I actually believe that it's genetic. I think my predilection for science fiction and horror is something that's written into my DNA. And I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, but I have a son who I swear to God, I have not encouraged at all to go in this direction. And at a very early age, he was immediately drawn to the macabre. It's in the genes. I think it's in the genes. I mean, it's probably a little more complicated. I'm sure I'm psychologically fucked up. So, um, (laughs) you know, that also contributes to this. But uh, it starts with the genes from my earliest days, I was drawn to this stuff. I think also because I frankly led a very unexceptional life. And I think this kind of material is a form of escape, you know, and ultimately it's very um, internal. I think that the greatest science fiction, horror, fantasy, or my favorite term is cinema fantastique is always looking inward. And in my life, I think the most interesting part of my life is the internal part of my life. I would never want to commit my day-to-day life to film. It would just be unbelievably boring. But the internal life is perhaps a little more interesting. And I just feel more comfortable swimming in those waters. You know, um, Mm. other people live exceptional lives, like fascinating lives that are, are worth sharing with others. But I don't. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because it's it is it's escapism, right? Not only as a, a viewer, but from what you're saying, it's almost escapism as a, a creator. I think so. And I think it's a way of processing the world. I think now we definitely live in interesting times and times that inspire a lot of fear and anxiety. And as we know, those are the times that the horror genre is at its most active and, you know, the times that people are most drawn to it. And I think because it's a way of processing those real world fears in this a safer context of, of entertainment. That's why horror ultimately is such a potent 
genre because it it skips all the bullshit. It goes like straight into the core of who we are as humans and what we fear as humans and therefore deals with really big existential issues. I think it plays an important role actually in terms of how our culture processes the real world horror that exists. And how about the the storyboarding? Um, because I think I personally think this is super super cool. I know story other storyboard artists, but it's such a unique craft and it's such a um, a, an extremely incredible talent. Have they helped in your storytelling as both a screenwriter and a director? You know, I wanted to be a comic book artist before I wanted to be a filmmaker. In my mm. earliest days, I was drawn towards comic books. And I kind of kept that dream alive for a long time. And I actually still do. <laughs> mm. As a matter of fact, I just finished drawing my own graphic novel. Oh, cool. And comic books are effectively storyboards with some augmentation. And so there was always, for me, a very strong link between the kind of storytelling that I like, which began with comic books, and filmmaking, which use storyboard as a kind of um, a bridge between the writing process and the filmmaking process. So from my earliest days, like when I was 11 years old making Super 8 films, I was storyboarding them. And really not much has changed since. I mean, screenwriting, as you know, is a very odd form of writing because 99.9% .9 of the people who watch a movie will never read the screenplay. I mean, the only people who are going to read the screenplay are the people making the film. So mm -hmm. the actual writing, the prose, the words are not visible to the general public for the most part, unless, you know, they really seek them out. And storyboarding is, is the process that interprets words into images. So I, I do think the two are intertwined. And I do think that this is like an amazing question. I've never actually thought about it before, but I I do think that it's likely that my experience drawing boards has influenced my writing. And I would say that I am a storyboard artist first before I'm a writer. I think that's really neat. And it's also, it's interesting because that's the beginning of it, right? The, the storyboarding. But then you also have the ending, which is the editing. Um, but I think both bookends of the, the process of the experience kind of function in similar ways because you're, you are creating those scenes, you are cutting those together, whether that's um, creating those as, as comic book, um, you know, frames or creating those in the, in the edit. So it is really neat. It is really neat to think about. And um, I definitely think it contributed to your successes in storytelling, which, which are vast. I, w I will say this on a few occasions I have, rather than writing a short film. I've never done this with a feature, but rather than writing a short film, I've drawn a short film. Mm. Like I just skipped the whole writing process altogether and just storyboarded it. And I, I don't necessarily recommend that for anything, but I think, <laughs> I think that, th that you could make a case that, that, you know, storyboarding can be a form of writing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And on the screenplay front, I'm curious about the Netflix film In the Tall Grass. Let me start by saying I loved it. Uh, for those who don't know, it's an adaptation of a Stephen King novella. So how did you come about getting involved as a writer? I came to that project because of a, a producer I know in Los Angeles named Gloria Fan, who out of the blue one day called me and said, I have two Stephen King, co-written Stephen King and Joe Hill short stories. And would you be interested in looking at them potentially to make as features. And of course, I immediately said yes, because I grew up reading Stephen King. And, and I also really love Joe Hill's writing. I think he's exceptional. And uh, one of them was um, Full Throttle, which is kind of a riff on Steven Spielberg's movie Duel. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And the, oh, and nice. the other was in the tall grass. And, and I like them both, but full throttle isn't really my style. But in the tall grass is so close to the kind of things that I do that I almost said no, because I thought, well, this is a little bit, this is a path I've tread before. And I wondered whether I might be repeating myself a bit, but um, ultimately I could not resist because <laughs> it was Stephen King <laughs> okay. and Joe Hill. <laughs> okay. And um, through email, I think, if I remember correctly, I, I pitched a take to them and they said yes. But it's a very interesting process writing a Stephen King slash Joe Hill adaptation because certainly Stephen King, I assume Joe is the same, have a pro forma deal. You option the project for $1 and then you have to meet certain benchmarks in terms of delivering a draft and then taking the script out to whomever to get it made. And so I just went through that process and I found them both to be very supportive and you know that that story is such that it, it required some interpretation it, it couldn't be literally translated into a feature film i had to embellish it in certain ways but they were very very open to all of the new things that i was adding to the mix and you know we're really good partners and even though i ultimately didn't make any of the benchmarks <laughs> they stuck well actually that's not true i did make the i made the first benchmark i delivered my script on time but then the process of like actually getting made took much, much longer. And in fact, the rights lapsed at a certain point, but they very kindly, informally said, you know, the story is still yours. So it took about five years from the time the script was written to the film wow. actually being produced with Netflix. Wow. Um, that's a, that's but a, that was it. That's wow, a that long stint. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's actually kind of like warp speed for me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to much longer experiences uh, developing material and, and very often with, you know, no movie to show for at the end of it. So, yeah, so that, that, that's what, how it happened. It really, it really was just the process of, you know, me sitting down and writing. And I must say I was able to do it with, you know, virtually no creative interference. You, you make a good point. Like a lot of um, up and coming writers listening uh, in our audience think things happen so much quicker than they do. You know, and it's and to hear from someone who has written um, and directed a horror film for Netflix, it's kind of refreshing to hear that it takes a while. It, it's not an overnight thing. It's it, five years, you know, is warp speed, like you said. It, it does take some time. This has been the number one obstacle for me personally in this business is just the incredible patience that's required to get anything made. It's taken me many years to begin to figure out how to deal with that. And I mean, just on a psychological level, my, my advice to all the young people out there, to the older people as well, is because by definition, filmmaking is such an expensive medium and requires so many things to line up in order for it to actually materialize into a real movie. As artists, we need to find ways to keep ourselves creatively alive while all of that is going on. Because we, we only have a limited amount of control in terms of how movies actually come together. Um, and, and I think that applies across the board, whether you're me or whether you're Guillermo del Toro or somebody like that, like it's just hard. And so there's this thing called development hell and there's no escaping it. So take comfort in the fact that you're not special in that regard. It's universal. But I think the best way to deal with it is to somehow do things that aren't film related. Activities that keep you creatively alive, produce something that you can share with people that you feel passionate about and that you take energy from just the process of, 
of, of making it like they keep you in the creative process because unfortunately with movies or specifically writing screenplays they are not intended for public consumption like you'll you could spend 10 years and i've done this before writing a screenplay and only a handful of people will ever read it because if the movie's not made then the only people who read it are a couple development executives or maybe more than a couple and maybe some producers maybe some actors but that's it and, and to put that much work into something and to not get anything back from it, except for just the experience of having made it and what you learn from having made it over time, for me anyway, becomes a bit debilitating. So in recent years, I've sort of found ways to apply myself to other things that are related to filmmaking, but don't trap me in that kind of prison of development hell. And and the perfect example is like that comic book I was telling you about, which I, I just finished drawing, was immensely satisfying to me because on a daily basis, I would finish a page of it and then it would be done. And I would have something to show for my effort, something materially that I could hold in my hand. And I did it without anyone else's participation. I didn't have to take notes from anybody. I didn't have to suffer through the politics that one naturally does when making a film or writing a screenplay. It could be could be anything like it could be music. It could be writing a play and producing a play or a podcast or there are so many amazing tools at our fingertips that are, you know, affordable and uh, empower us in such a way that we can create amazing things and sh then digitally share them with no cost to us or the user. I think it's good to like keep doing that stuff to like just have a, a little safe space that you can escape to from the film world because the film world is unchangeable it's an immutable force that just is what it is and sometimes it's great and sometimes it's horrendously cruel and i think to kind of weather the storm over a long period of time which is really what you need to do to survive it's great if you can carve out that little space for yourself where you just get to create and it's not about making money and it's not about impressing people necessarily, but it's about allowing yourself to just do what you love to do. And then ideally in a perfect world, share it with some people with an end result. I think that's what it is, like a visible end result. The problem with the screenplay is that the screenplay is not a finished product. It's always a step to a, something else. And I think as an artist, it's important to be able to share your work and you know, receive some kind of feedback from what you're doing. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that about the comics. We had um, two guests on the show a few weeks ago, uh, David Schrader and Clay Adams. I don't know if you're aware of them. They're, they're creating a, a horror anthology comic book called Nightmare Theater. And they've reached out to all these different horror writers and creators, and it's become an outlet for them to to get on board and actually do something in their spare time and contribute to this like 250 page horror comic book anthology. And that's super cool. It's actually something that would have been probably right up your alley or be right up your alley. We should I should probably connect you with them. Totally. That's just it. I think it's a often making movies. It's a surprised even though we deal with a lot of people and it's a collaborative process it's only collaborative really when you're out actually shooting the movie mm -hmm. but writing as we know is very insular and lonely um and so yeah that what you're describing is really great because in addition to making something it's connecting people and and that also is like i, I think a big part of surviving this what invariably is a very challenging process it's 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 good if you're not alone yeah, and I agree with you there. Like when I write my screenplays, my horror screenplays, I write with a co-writer and I don't feel alone and I don't feel alone just as physically alone, but I also don't feel alone in, in ideas. I don't feel like I just 
throw ideas out to myself. I feel like I have someone else to bounce things off of. She bounces things off of me. It makes the whole process more fun and engaging, and it also makes it um, a better product. It's wonderful if you can have that. I think having a partner in that way is invaluable. I want to segue back into your film endeavors uh, and your screenplay endeavors. Now, Splice is one of my favorite sci-fi films from this decade, probably. And I'm not just saying that to blow smoke. It, it really is a great film, and it also is a really fun film to... Uh, I have a like a 100-inch uh, projector with surround sound. It's a really fun film to just watch as like an action film too and it has great effects and it you know has it has really fun sequences and some really horrifying moments some great characters tell us how that script came to be where where did that idea come from and also what inspired the creation of the character and anti-hero of sorts dren really interesting character also you worked with co-writers on that as well to bring that to life it's only recently that I would start to write solo. And in the past, I definitely relied on collaboration to work with strong writers who helped me. And that's definitely the case with Splice, which speaking of, you know, long development processes took about, well, I can say exactly. It took 12 years from the day the first draft of the script was finished to the movie actually being finished. Holy moly. So it went through. A, wow. It's. Which on one hand is terrifying. Um, I, I don't even think, like I, heard, I heard Moneyball took a long time to put together like that, that script and movie. <laughs> and that was like 10 years. Like this is like unbelievable. 12 years. Yeah. It's like a Sisyphean kind of thing, you know, rolling that wow. rock up the hill and they, up the development hill and then it would roll back down and it would roll wow. back up. And wow. it had a long history and, and, and with good reason, because it is, you know, it's a movie that breaks some taboos and, you know, goes to some fairly transgressive places, but is also a bit expensive. It's very taboo, isn't it? I, I'm thinking that my, now back to it, like the scenes where taking Dren in as a, as a child almost, but then spoiler alert, you know, Adrian Brody's character, like, <laughs> like having sex with this creature, you know, as a taboo thing, that is very taboo. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's why it took a French company to make it. Cause they're like, <laughs> pourquoi pas? Yeah, why not? Like, eh. yeah. Leave it, leave it to the, leave it to the French. Right. They don't have those hangups uh, that we have as uh, <laughs> Americans or Canadians or whatever. But um, that is the truth. That's why the movie got made. So I knew going in, this was not going to be an easy thing to do. And sure enough, it took a long time. The fact that it actually got made and it somehow actually got released by a major studio is beyond comprehension to me. I mean, my life can end now and I will forever be at peace because I was able to make Splice. In terms of the inspiration for it, it goes way, way back. I um, It was originally written as a short film. It wasn't even called Splice at that time. Uh, when I was at the Canadian Film Center, which is um, kind of the Canadian equivalent of the American Film Institute. And I wrote it with um, a resident writer there, Antoinette Terry. And it was inspired by, I had seen this photo of this thing called the Vacanti Mouse, which I believe was an MIT experiment where they created what looked like a human ear on the back of a, a hairless mouse. It, it was like a shocking image because, because it looked like it stepped out of a Salvador Dali painting. And also because the mouse itself looked incredibly vulnerable. And I immediately empathized with the mouse. That idea of like the vulnerability of that creature and the technology that existed to create it really struck a chord with me. And so the short film was just about a guy who 
is in a relationship and you kind of see him with his girlfriend and they're having a, a nice night watching a, a movie at home and then he gets a page from work and he has to go to work so he leaves her and then he goes to what turns out to be an underground complex where there is a hybrid organism that clearly has been cloned from that girlfriend and he's coldly observing it and making clinical observations about it and at a certain point he is tempted to go into the room and he goes inside the room and he kisses it and then he leaves and then he goes back to his girlfriend and we cut back to the chamber where the creature is and we see that it's dying from exposure to him like his oh, his germs wow. have infected and it's dying and then he wakes up from a nightmare his girlfriend says are you okay and he says yeah yeah i'm fine and then he goes into the bathroom and you see him pull hairs out of her comb so you know he's gonna make another one. Oh wow so that was i the, love that i love that take where, on clone like i love that cloning take but also with that emotional resonance to it too that's like the the secret sauce mixture for me that just like i love that stuff I'm sitting here all creeped out. I, if you could only see my face. I'm just like, you're creeped. And I'm like, that's so, I'm like, that's so lovely. And like, so Ariel's scared to death. <laughs> well, but you guys hit on it. Like, that's exactly what excited me was. It was both repugnant and also exciting and emotional. That was spliced for me. It was the, the mixture of those different uh, elements. So that was, that was the seed from which the feature film, we didn't make the short film because it was impossible to make. So Twinette and I decided, well, let's make that into a feature screenplay. And we expanded upon it. And that it was it was always going to be about the intersection between human relations and, of course, the tremendous weaknesses we have as humans and this incredibly powerful science. And it was very clear to me, even then, this is in the, I guess, the mid-90s, that genetic engineering was the next big thing. And it's going to change it and it, it, it will change everything. But much as Mary Shelley realized 200 years before me, you know, are humans really ready to deal with that? And what yeah. will the results be? So that's how Splice began. And the screenplay, even though it took 12 years and, and that was an incredibly long process and I would much rather have done it much faster, I do think that the advantage of spending that much time developing the material was the material matured and it matured with me also as I got older and as a human being. I hopefully grew a little bit. I grew into the movie or into the concept of the movie a little bit. And, it, you know, we just kept rewriting it. And then Doug Taylor, who is the third writer, was brought on. We brought Doug on after the movie started to move forward with Goma, which is the French company that ultimately decided to make the film. What necessitated the need to bring on another writer? I think everyone agreed that the script was like 70% there and it just needed a little another nudge mm. to the next level. Yeah. And Antoinette and I had been working on it for a long time. And I think having another voice in there was... The same thing happened with Cube, actually, my first film. That film was written with a friend of mine who I've known since I was eight years old. And, and we were roommates at the time when we wrote it. It was a similar thing. It's like the script was quite evolved, but they felt like it needed to go just another step. And so we brought in Graham Manson. And Graham... It was very similar. Graham just kind of... To what Doug did. Graham just sort of bumped it up another level, especially like fleshing out the characters. So the, both those cases, I think my initial co-writer and I really worked out the story. Like we totally broke the story. The, if you were to read the scripts that Antoinette and I wrote, it's, it is that story. And then at the end, we brought in another writer to just lift up the characters a little bit. But in both cases, I think it was just sort of taking a story that had been worked out and, and just pushing it up to the next level. I'm proud of both of those films and proud of 
the you know the screenplays that resulted from them. I like striking down anyone that makes comparisons um, from Splice and Species. I like hate those people because they're so different. When that came out, people were at least in my circles were like, "Oh, it's a little bit like Species." I'm like, "It's nothing like Species. Species is softcore porn. Uh, Splice is." has much more emotional depth to it and it's such a different film in, in, in every way you're saying all the right things <laughs> but did you ever get that did you get that when it came out did anybody did you ever hear anybody say that yeah no no i well no one said it to me per se but i i definitely read that and it mm -hmm. it annoyed me i i for all those reasons thank you i i yeah. really appreciate it because uh, I, I i just wanted to set the record by the way straight. it's not <laughs> that that it annoyed me as well down, i don't want to put down species <laughs> i think species has it's its own you know, thing things to be said the things to be said but but you know why it annoyed me it's because splice was the opposite of that movie like oh. it was my express intention to make a movie where the monster doesn't escape the point was yep. that yep. traditionally species follows a more conventional narrative where you create a monster and then the monster escapes and chaos ensues and then you have to kill the monster and and Antoinette and I wanted the whole point of Splice is that the monster doesn't escape that the people who made the creature turn into monsters having made it at the very end of course we have a denouement where dren turns on her creators but dren never escapes like she's killed or he is killed um uh, spoiler alert before that happens and um i mean if if you want to compare the movie to anything or if i were to say like the, what film does the movie truly owe a debt to it's it's cronenberg's fly because that much that better is comparison Yes. Uh, not to say that it's in the same category as The Fly, but, but The Fly was a movie that showed me how you could create a, a chamber piece mm -hmm. with a monster. Also, there was a, there was a little bit of um, pragmatic thinking in all of this, which was I knew the creature would be very, very expensive. And, and therefore, I tried to make every other element of the movie uh, affordable, you know, just to have a few characters, a few locations to, to make it a chamber piece. Whereas, you know, Species is the opposite of that. It's like, what one would expect a big Hollywood movie with lots of explosions and that sort of thing. So, yeah, uh, and, you yeah, know, I, yeah. I, I'm not for one for, for like, I, I, I'm a big proponent of practical effects and I've spoken about this on the show before, but, um, I, I really think Dren's character in her mixture of, or its mixture of special effects and practical effects uh, together, I just think it, it was handled very well. In this case, it, it worked to help bring that character from the page onto the screen in a, in a fairly represented way, I think, to, to what you envisioned it orig originally, or this character originally looking like on the page. That was also why it took so long, was just, um, you know, we spent a lot of time figuring out how to do the creature and what it, which, and that was part of the excitement, of course, was that it was, it was life imitating art. You know, I got to, yeah. I got to pretend like I was Clive and Elsa making this thing and designing what it would be. And, uh, and also it took a while for the technology to evolve, to permit us to make it. You can create a great character on the screen that looks awesome and true to how you envision that character to be. But in this case of the character of Dren, no amount of special effects can be layered on to substitute a well-drawn and well-created character on the page. This is a really great example of it because it both complement each other, but that character is super, super complex. And the, the success of the film rides, I think, personally on that character and the success of that starts at the page. Yeah, I agree. I really, you know, that's where low budget filmmaking is advantageous, actually, because I know with myself, my default mechanism is to like, just go big. When I'm writing, 
it's easier to write something that's flashy than it is to write something that's substantive. And when you can't afford flashy, <laughs> you have to get smart. That was the same thing with Cube. Like it definitely, there's, you know, somewhere there's like a, a, a line that you can cross. But but I, I do think, as we all know, restrictions often are the best way to become inspired and to force yourself to be smarter than you normally would without any kind of restrictions. Yeah. I think all forms of this craft of filmmaking are in one way or another a form of writing. If you are a cinematographer, you are writing. You're just using a different tool. You know, you're using light. If you are an editor, you are writing. You're just using cuts to tell a story because all of these crafts are devoted to narrative filmmaking to telling a story. And it's so therefore it is all, if you're storyboarding it for that matter, it's all a form of writing. When I first started in the you know, late 90s, people would sell spec scripts all the time. The machine of Hollywood was kind of fueled by spec scripts. Those were the days. And then as time went on, yeah, as time went on, people just didn't want original material. Now we're at this point where it's so corporate that, you know, when a spec script is actually sold, like it's a big deal. I do think taking the path of, of being a writer, a screenwriter is, you know, one of the hardest roads to follow. A, a noble road, but a, a very, a very challenging one. Now, bouncing off of that, what advice do you have for aspiring horror writers or even writers who want to direct their own work? Get out where you still can, right? <laughs> Run for the hills. I know. Well, I, I, I feel like I'm sounding like a, a big downer, but I don't think, I think it's an exciting time in a lot of ways. You know, like everything right now, it's sort of, we're walking this nice edge. I'm talking about the world at large, you know, between something great and something disastrous. And I think making movies... And maybe I shouldn't even talk about movies now because in a way, in the advent of Netflix and Amazon and all these streaming platforms, it sort of feels like the line between feature film and TV or other formats is dissolving. So in a way, it's all just becoming narrative. But yeah, making visual narrative storytelling is in some ways so much more difficult than when I was doing it. But in other ways, is so much easier. The challenge for young people starting out now is just to be heard and to be seen. Like people do watch movies at Sundance and festivals and they do get some attention, but there just isn't the, I don't think there's the, um, frankly, the commercial mechanism that used to exist that supported that. It's sort of become a little more rarefied and like a cultural event and less of a commercial event. And that makes it harder for your material to escape that kind of smaller venue. I think more than ever, you need your voice to be projected loudly. You need to invest yourself in your, your own voice to stand out from the crowd. That's the, the trick. Because at the end of the day, a fresh, original voice will be heard because there are very few. So if I had kind of a very basic piece of advice to people starting out, it would be make your voice strong and make it heard, whether you know it's writing or directing or a combination of the two. And then in the horror world specifically, I think it's a fantastic time because the world is a terrifying place <laughs> right now. It really is scary. Um, Seriously. It really is. And, and we know from history that this genre thrives in times where people are afraid because it's it's one of the best ways to for people to assimilate and deal with those real world fears. We're seeing like an incredible new crop of horror films and horror filmmakers and horror television. It's a good time to do it. You know, the worse the world gets, the better it is for the <laughs> for us. Yeah. So take advantage is. of it while it lasts. God knows we can have a utopia in a few few years and then we'll be screwed. 
Oh, goodness. <laughs> Anything's of, possible. Yeah. Speaking of scary times, um, I'm curious. We ask uh, many, many of our guests on the show this question. Vincenzo, what scares you? I'm not claustrophobic. I'm not afraid of the water. I'm a little bit afraid of heights, I guess. Really, I'm just afraid of the world. Like, I think that if you were to talk to my wife right now, she would say, I worry too much about the condition of the world. So my fears are very, I said this once before, I think, but I have existential claustrophobia. I'm afraid of, of the big things. Like, I'm afraid of life on earth ending or at least as we know it, because I feel like we're on the cusp of that. And, we're getting um, close. <laughs> getting pretty damn close. And and it feels like it's actually like a Lovecraftian kind of cosmic fear because it's so huge. It's something that's so like beyond us that it's it feels like it's beyond our control. Whenever I read like about massive glaciers melting, I go, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. that's usually your cue, you know. Yeah. The appropriate response, <laughs> yes. <laughs> On that uh, note, Vincenzo, thank you again for coming on the show today. It's just so great to have you here. And and our audience loves to hear from people who've made it like you. And whether you want to admit it or not, you have made it with your career. And you you have overcome a lot of things that a lot of other writers only dream of overcoming. So again, I appreciate you joining us today and sharing your wisdom with us, uh, sharing your experiences. We hope to have you on the show again in the the future to, to talk a little bit more because you can only fit so much into um into a period of time here so well it's an absolute delight patrick and ariel thank you so much i'm i'm honored and uh and it is a kind of final note i'll just say that as i get older now i'm getting a little bit older i've become less concerned about where i sit in the grand scheme of things i definitely feel like having done this since i was a kid very little has changed Like the process of making movies, whether you're shooting them on your iPhone with your friends or whether you're shooting with a big crew spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a day is kind of the same thing. My final statement about all this stuff is wherever you are in the process, it's always the same thing. You should enjoy and delight in the process because it's it's never going to get better. And enjoy the ride, right? Enjoy the journey. It's about the journey, not the destination, right? It's such a hoary cliche, but it's so true. Thanks again, Vincenzo, for for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. You made it to the end of the episode. And for that, we will reward you with how you can win your very own knife from 1428th Street. The way you do it, head over to our social nets uh, on Twitter specifically. Ariel will give you that information in just a second. And all you got to do is retweet this week's tweet for the episode announcement of Vincenzo's interview. That's all you got to do. Head over to Twitter, retweet it. We're going to keep an eye on it, see who's retweeted, and we're going to reach out to you. Keep your DMs open. We'll pick one lucky winner to win their own personalized horror knife from 1428th Street. And everyone's a winner because we're offering a 15% discount for 1428th Street to all of our listeners Head over to 1428ST on Facebook, put in code SCREAMWRITER, and you get 15% off your order. What more could you want? You get a knife, and you get a knife, and you get a knife, (laughs) and Ariel, you get a knife. So Ariel, how can they find us on the social net, specifically Twitter, so they can retweet this post? You can find us on Twitter and the magical tweet that we would like you to retweet for the gorgeous knife at ScreamWritersPC. 
If you're more of an Instagram person, you can find us on Screamwriters Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you have any questions or want to be on the show, visit screamwriterspodcast.com and fill out our contact form. Tune in next week for a special Christmas episode with a guest I can't even begin to tell you how I'm excited about who is spending his Christmas day with us, an iconic legend in the horror sphere. Tune in next week for that show. It's going to be amazing. But until then, keep writing. And stay scared.